0: Hopefully we'll get through this uh, wintertime sickness without um, too much problem, but um, we are going to look at Luke chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at the first 20 verses. Um, title of this sermon this morning is No Common Joy. No Common Joy. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 as we get started. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, if I tell you uh, an account of something that happened 2,000 years ago that involved the world's most powerful ruler, a poor young country girl who was the talk of the town when she turned up pregnant during her espousal to a kind-hearted and mild-mannered carpenter, some night-shift shepherds outside of a small rural village. You might think, well, that sounds interesting, but you might wonder, what does that have to do with any of us today? And though 2,000 years sounds like a long time, this story actually goes back much, much further than that. In fact, we could actually trace it back to before the world existed. But trying to get our minds around a time when there was no time and space is uh, quite a bit taxing for us, so we'll not go back quite that far. But we can go back when this earth and this universe was very, very young and humanity's common parents were in the Garden of Eden. And though they were created without sin, Adam and Eve sinned and brought the curse upon creation. But God spoke to them of the hope of salvation, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And what we find is that God promised that a baby boy would be born who would deliver the creation from the curse and save men and women from death. Now by the end of Genesis, we have learned that this baby boy will be born into the family of Abraham. He'll be born into the family of Isaac. He'll be born into the family of Jacob. And by Genesis 49.10, we learn he's going to be born into the family of Judah. By the time that David reigned over Israel as king, David was promised that it would be his descendant, his son, who would be born king and would be given the everlasting throne, Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 12. And of course, the prophet Isaiah prophesied again about this baby boy that would be born and said that he would be born to a virgin and would be called Emmanuel. In other words, God with us, Isaiah seven fourteen, and that this baby boy will sit on the throne of David, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We come one forward to the prophet Micah who was a contemporary with Isaiah for a time and prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2 and of course later Daniel received a time frame for the coming of the Messiah from the angel Gabriel that visited him that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem around 445 BC to the Messiah being cut off would be 69 weeks of seven years each for a total of 483 years. And that brings us right to somewhere around 4 BC and the intersection of all of these people that Luke writes about here in chapter 2 in his gospel. So we want to look at this passage and really you can see that it has two primary parts to it. We have verses 1 to 7 where we read about the birth of the baby and we have Jesus in the manger and then verses 8 to 20 um, tells us about the angels and the shepherds and how they came um, to see him. So we're going to start in the first part here verse number one and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now Caesar Augustus was the great nephew, Octavius, of Julius Caesar, who was assassinated in 44 B.C. And Octavius joined Mark Antony and um, Cleopatra to defeat the assassins of Caesar, which were Brutus and Cassius, if you remember your high school history. And that happened in around 42 B.C. And for several years, the Roman Empire was actually divided. Um, It was the Western Empire and it was the Eastern Empire. And the Western Empire was ruled by Octavius, the Eastern Empire by Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And then later, around 31 B.C., at the Battle of of Actium, Octavius actually defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And after their deaths, he ended up becoming the sole emperor of Rome in about 30 B.C. And he ruled from that time until about 14 A.D. Now, in January of 27 in B.C., he accepted the title of August. That's why he's called here Caesar Augustus. The title of August that the Senate of Rome essentially bestowed um, on him. And that title August means revered, um, perhaps even worshipped. It was a title that, that signified at least there was, he was a semi-deity, As the emperor of Rome. Now, Luke says that he gave a decree for the world to be taxed. Of course, the world would refer to the known world or to the Roman Empire really at that time. And the word for taxed is is a word that actually it can be used to mean sort of like register, like in a census. Verse 2 says, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Now, there's some debate uh, about what exactly occurred, and if you want to fall into a rabbit hole, you certainly can try to trace out um, the history involved in these first two verses. But historically, there was an empire-wide census under Serenius when he was governor, um, and that was several years after that Jesus was born by all other indications and calculations. Now, there's no record of such a census prior to the death of Herod the Great Uh, when Jesus was born, which was around 4 B.C. But Luke's expression here, as I understand it grammatically, and he uses that word um, prote uh, that's translated first here, and his his expression here, though it is an odd construction, it can actually mean before the census in Sirenius' time, and I I do believe um, that is likely what it means. And the most likely explanation for this is that there was some sort of registering probably for new divisions of provinces. It was something that went on all the time. And so they, it's sort of like when, when we undergo redistricting um, and they, they assign senators and sometimes places will lose congresspeople because of redistricting and population. And so they do that sort of thing for um, governorships and for taxation purposes, and all that sort of thing. And that was, that was actually pretty common to take place In Rome, and that is most likely what was going on here. Verse number three, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Now, Luke adds that people had to return essentially to their ancestral homelands for registry, in other words, their birthplaces, and most likely places of their inheritance, places of their property ownership. Verse four, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Luke gets to the point here of this historical narrative. Joseph was required to go from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. And he was required to go there because that was his birthplace. And it was his birthplace because he was descendant from David. This is where the family of of David um, was from and where they had settled once again after the return. And he would have had other family there and probably owned some property there as a matter of inheritance. And so all of this would have required that he goes back to Bethlehem for this registry um, of of whatever the the reason was for it that um, Caesar Augustus had decreed. Now, Bethlehem was the home of David, and it was also where the Messiah descended from David, was prophesied to be born. Remember Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. And this actually brings us to an excellent um, observation about these events, and one of those persistent, perplexing problems that people have with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. You see, God had ordained from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. However, Luke is very clear that Joseph went to Bethlehem because of Caesar's decree and the fact that that's where he was born. So when you think about this, Caesar Augustus was not attempting to fulfill God's will by decreeing that everyone returns home so Joseph and and Mary would have to go back to Bethlehem that wasn't his that wasn't his purpose at all Joseph was not directed to go to Bethlehem by an angel like when he would later be instructed to go to Egypt I mean Luke states it very plainly he went there because that was his place that was his place that was where he was from that was he was of the family of David so Augustus was acting within his own mind, and his own decision-making. He's, Augustus is not asking, what would God, what would the God of heaven and earth have me do as the emperor of Rome? That wasn't his question. He was God on earth as far as he was concerned. All he was thinking was whatever he was thinking, whether it was the redistricting or, or whatever that, that was going on for the purpose of this registry, that's all he was thinking about. That's what his desires and his needs were, and that's how he was acting. Joseph, on the other hand, was responding to a government requirement. He had to return home. He was compelled to return home, and Mary went with him because they were in the process of marriage. Now, both Augustus and Joseph fulfilled God's will, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he was the promised son of, of David. So if we pay attention as we read the Bible, the Bible is full of examples like this where men and women act for different reasons. In other words, they have their own reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. And yes, sometimes in the Bible we do have God speaking to a prophet and directing him to go here and, and to do this and to say that. But many times we have um, kings or whoever the case may be, are, they're acting out of their own, um, their own wants, their own desires, their own thinking, and yet they're fulfilling God's will at the same time. So when those actions that men and women undertake are sinful actions, they will be judged for those actions. And they will be accountable. Why? Why? because they acted out of their own desires. They acted in response maybe to their own lust. They had their own reasons for doing what they were doing. But God rules over all, and it fulfilled his will perfectly. So again, just another wonderful example of how all of these things came together. And Luke is very careful to tell us that. It wasn't an angel appearing to Joseph and said, Joseph, you know, you need to go to Bethlehem. Mary's about to deliver, and and the baby needs to be born in Bethlehem. That didn't happen. He was compelled to go there for governmental reasons, and he was there, of course, when Jesus was born, fulfilling God's will. Well, let's continue on. Verse 5, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, Mary traveled with Joseph, uh, and and the trip would have taken around four days, probably. Um, Luke points out that she was the betrothed wife of Joseph, meaning that they were in the second stage of the Jewish marriage custom. There was the arrangement was the first stage, the espousal or what we might think of as an engagement, but it wasn't really like engagement the way that we practice it. Um, there was actually a ceremony involved. There was actually a contract. They were actually legally considered husband and wife at the time, but they weren't yet living together as husband and wife until after um, the the final stage and and the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage and, and all of that. So they're in this second stage of this marriage custom, and she goes with him to Bethlehem. And Luke also notes that She was pregnant with the baby Jesus, and in the later stages of that pregnancy, not too long from time for delivery. Verse 6, And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. So during their time there, it did come time for Mary to deliver this baby boy. And of course, Luke adds later in verse 21 that his name was Jesus. Verse 7 She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So Jesus was born, he was swaddled with cloths, and he was laid in a feeding trough. And that's what the word manger is, it's what it's describing. Now, it's common tradition to think that Jesus was born in a stable, but that's not actually what the text says. She used a feeding trough for a crib, that's clear. There's nothing about them being surrounded by animals um, or being in a stable for, specifically. And the word for inn that is used here is actually a word that doesn't mean a commercial inn. It, it doesn't refer to rooms that were for hire. The word that is actually used here refers to private rooms, more like a guest room that a family would keep for their their traveling family when they were, were visiting to be able to stay in. So most likely, this is referring to the guest rooms of Joseph's family that they had in their houses, and because of the traveling and, and the people um, coming back there, obviously more than just Joseph would have returned to Bethlehem. Other members of, of his family and, and relatives and such would have been coming in too, and so there, there was no there was no guest room for them to stay in. So wherever that they were, she um, wasn't in a place that was typically used for guests to stay. Could have been in close proximity to the animals. Um, and, and the trough could have been brought there for the purpose of a crib. So there, there's some things that we don't know. There's a lot of traditions that tell us a lot of things. But there's really um, some things that we, that we don't know. We just, we just realized she wasn't in a normal room that was used for the purpose of a guest room. That wasn't where she was. And certainly probably not accustomed to using a, a, a crib uh, from a feeding trough. But also we're told here that Jesus was her firstborn son. And that's because she was a virgin, just as the scripture foretold, hinted at all the way back in Genesis 3.15, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And of course, Mary went on to have other children have, and have those by just the conventional means after that Jesus was born, after that her marriage to Joseph was consummated. And So now we get to the second part, which is the announcement of what has taken place and and something of what it means. And we begin looking here and we see the glory of God and these shepherds at night, beginning in verse number eight. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So the rest of this passage down to verse number 20 recounts the angelic announcement to some shepherds that are out there in the country um, they're close to the small rural village of Bethlehem. Now, shepherds in Israel were obviously not despised like they were in Egypt in Jacob's time. Um, They weren't an abomination, but being a shepherd was still yet considered a lowly profession and it really offered no social standing. Shepherds, especially who had the night shift, would have ranked among the lowest of the shepherds in that entire class. So these were shepherds outside this small rural village of Bethlehem who watched the flocks at night. And they were about as full a collection of nobodies as can be assembled. That's just the truth of who they were. Verse number 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. We're told that they were terrified. An angel from God appeared to these lowly, common shepherds at night. They were surrounded by a bright light, and they were afraid. Verse 10 says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So just like the previous angelic announcements, if you're reading through Luke, you have an angel making an announcement to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. You have an angel making an announcement to Mary. and In all those cases, there's always these same words, fear not. And one of those reasons why is because the angel has words of great joy. The angel has words that are calls for rejoicing, not for terror. Instead of being terrifying, the angel brought what's described as good news. And yes, that is the same word that we encounter numerous times, and a group of words that, that are related to it, sometimes translated gospel. Sometimes translated good news, sometimes translated glad tidings. Essentially, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I evangelize you with great joy. The word for people here is not the word that we might expect. Now, generally in the New Testament, when you see people, and particularly if it's plural, it's actually referring to nations, and it's ethnikos in the Greek. But that's not the word that's used here. It's actually laos, and we sort of get our English word laity from it. Well, laos refers more typically to common people specifically. In other words, it's a word that is often used in contrast from people that are of a special class or of some special group. So this announcement was not made to the high and mighty. It wasn't into the chamber of Caesar Augustus that the angel of the Lord stood and told this good news. But rather, it was to the commonest group in Israel, night shepherds. Verse number 11, here's the announcement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Notice how also the angel says, born unto you, the common people of Israel, born unto you. And when we see all these descriptions that the angel uses, the angel is announcing the birth of of the long-expected Messiah that has been prophesied for so long. We go way back in the Old Testament and it's prophesied for so long, so many years. The baby that is born, the angel says, is the Savior. And that word means deliverer or rescuer, particularly the one who will save Israel. And again, having its roots in the Old Testament. But of course, he is a savior, not only of Israel, but of all nations who believe in him. It says that he is born in the city of David because he is the son of David, prophesied to be born of David to rule from David's throne, Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 12. And of course, when the city of David is referred to most of the time, most of the time, it's a reference to Zion or Jerusalem. But here, and there are some other places in the Old Testament, it's a reference to Bethlehem. Notice this announcement that the angel Gabriel made to Mary. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, "'Hail thou that are highly favored. "'The Lord is with thee. "'Blessed art thou among women.' "'And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, "'And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. "'And the angel said unto her, "'Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. "'And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb "'and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. "'He shall be great, and shall be called the son of the highest. "'And the Lord God shall give unto him "'the throne of his father David.' says that this baby boy that is born this day is Christ, Christos. It means anointed or anointed one. It is the equivalent of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament from which we get Messiah in our English. They are are completely equivalent terms. The Messiah is born. And then notice what the angel adds right at the end. Christ the Lord. Now, this is kurios in the Greek, and of course, it's a word that can just be a title of respect, like calling someone sir, but it also is used to speak of God and to speak of deity, and that is the meaning here. We have just recently seen the significance of this reference that Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. Psalm 110, Psalm 132, and Jesus refers to it in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. I'm not going to rehash all of that, but we have just seen the significance, and here it is again. We have David, we have Christ, and we have Lord. Verse 12, And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the shepherds are given a sign, and and the sign means that the words of the angel are true. In other words, the sign confirms that the revelation given by the angel is true. It confirms that Jesus, this baby, when they go and see this baby boy in a manger, that he is everything the angel said he was. And the sign was they would see the baby. You will find the baby Jesus swaddled in a feeding trough in Bethlehem that's the sign and he is who they said he is verse 13 and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying so there appeared a large number of the heavenly host and that word for host means army and this heavenly means that they were angels This is an angelic army, a great number of an angelic army that has appeared at night to these shepherds and were told how that they were praising God. Luke goes on to what they were saying, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward man. They glorified God in the highest heaven for his gift to men he favored on earth the earth, even these lowly shepherds. This is referring to sending his son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary to save his people from their sins. And then the shepherds go to see. Verse 15, and it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. In verse 16, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. In other words, they go into Bethlehem, they find Joseph and Mary, and baby Jesus lying in this manger, swaddled in this feeding trough, just like the angels had said. It's verse 17, when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. So they told the news of what they had seen and of what they had heard, and they told it all throughout the area where they were. In verse 18, all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. In other words, they, they caused a stir with, with spreading this news, and the word for wonder is the idea of, of, of astonishment. And so the people that heard this news, this report of the shepherds, they're astonished. And, and, and they wonder, like, what it all might mean. Is this really the long-expected Messiah? And when you study, of course, the history of, of Israel, oh, there, there have been many such reports of, of a Messiah throughout the, the centuries, many such reports of those that are supposed to be, but it turned out not to be. So is, is this at last the one That we have been waiting for. And look at verse 19. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. We're told that she treasured these things in her heart or in her mind. And This is probably a nod to Mary as part of the source material for Luke. And his historical research to write the story of Jesus. And the last verse in this passage, verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So the shepherds returned to their sheep and they did so glorifying God, praising God because Jesus the Christ had been born. So as we look at this passage, one of the obvious aspects of this passage is the way that Luke uses the contrasts in in this passage very effectively. If you think about it, we go from Caesar Augustus and even down to Serenius that is mentioned. These were elite and powerful rulers in the most powerful empire on the earth to Joseph and Mary who were just a poor young couple surrounded by scandalous rumor living in Nazareth and, and probably, uh, we might say today, nowheresville. And they're journeying from that place to Bethlehem. In other words, quite a contrast. We go from bright angels of heaven's army to lowly night shepherds keeping their flocks in this rural country village. Well, all of this contrast highlights humility and especially the circumstances of Jesus' birth. It's hard to imagine um, any more humiliation in that sense, any more condescension being brought low than being wrapped in cloths as a baby and laid in a feeding trough, not even, and your mother not even really having a, a proper bed. It's hard to, hard to imagine much lower circumstances than that. And this speaks of something that is so hard to comprehend. Jesus, the Son of God, equal with God, left the glory that he had in heaven. Now, he never ceased being God, not for even a second. And we see how the angels bring that out. Christ Jesus, the Lord, he didn't cease being God even though he was a humiliated little baby laid in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. He was born in poor and humble circumstances. No great fanfare. This was, what we're witnessing here is what we might say the beginning of Jesus' humiliation. Paul writes about it this way, Philippians chapter 2. Some of these verses we've been memorizing, verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Paul gives us another answer, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. God gave the gift of his Son, to be born into the world, to endure complete humiliation so that through him we can be rich. And he's not talking about dollars that have pictures of dead presidents on them. He's talking about rich in blessings of eternal life for all who believe. Well, how do we respond to such a gift. Well, like the angel said, don't don't be afraid. Have great joy. This is good news for every one of us. This is good news. These simple shepherds rejoiced. And what did they do? They just returned to their daily lives, keeping the sheep, being common, lowly, nobody special. They spread their word and, and maybe had a few that would ask about them, but over time they just went back to being Jim, Joe, Bob, and, and, and whoever else that there was there in that day. So we respond by going to sleep, waking up, taking care of your responsibilities, no matter how dull they may seem, no matter how boring they may seem, but doing so with faith. And full of joy that Jesus the Savior was born. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And he will return to establish his kingdom upon this earth. And everyone, no matter a shepherd, an emperor, a governor, a carpenter, or a poor young country girl, no matter who you are, everyone who believes will have the gift of everlasting life. And this is certainly no common.